We hear in this the purpose of Jesus' birth. Listen to the word of God, Isaiah 49. I'll begin at uh, read verses 1 through 13. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, he has made mention of my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I've labored to no purpose. I've spent my strength in vain and for nothing. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob, and to bring those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nations, to the servant of rulers. Kings will see you and rise up. Princes will see and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. This is what the Lord says. In the time of my favor, I will answer you. In the day of salvation, I will help you. I will keep you and I will make you to be a covenant for the people, to restore the land and to reassign its desolate inheritance, to say to the captives, come out, and to those in darkness, be free. They will feed beside the roads and find pasture on every barren hill. They will neither hunger nor thirst, nor will the desert heat or the sun beat upon them. He who has compassion on them will guide them and lead them beside springs of water. I will turn all my mountains into roads, and my highways will be raised up. See, they will come from afar, some from the north, some from the west, some from the region of Aswan. Shout for joy, O heavens. Rejoice, O earth. Burst into song, O mountains. For the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. Join me as I pray. Father, in this season of Advent, this season of expectation, we need to hear your promises. For Lord, some of us come with with eager excitement and anticipation of of the celebration of the birth of our Savior. And so, Lord, we ask that you would give us the boldness to sing for joy, to, to proclaim your gospel among the nations. But Lord, some of us come with the the desperate expectations, the longing for you to to intervene in our lives, for we feel the the world spiraling out of control. We feel the sorrow and sadness of the season. And so we need the promise of your word, that you are the God who will keep your promises. So Lord, let us see the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, Jesus our Savior, Jesus our rescuer, Jesus your servant. Lord, we come praying in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a difference between hearing and listening, right? You know, there are times when you're just kind of nodding along, and sometimes it's an important conversation, but you're not really listening. 
Or it's those moments. I was reminded of this in a, in a chapel service on campus uh, last week. I was fully engaged as we stood and sang Christmas carols. I listened intently as the word was preached, but it was a, it was a graduation chapel service. So then they just start reading names. Now, I didn't know anyone that was graduating, so I felt like it was totally appropriate to pull out some classwork and get myself a little bit ahead. But you realize then, as, as the names are called, I have a much different interest level than the, the family members, the parents, the spouses that are gathered to watch their, their loved ones graduate. They're listening intently. I'm hearing what's happening. And this, this section of, of Scripture begins with a, with a very clear declaration. The, the command that comes to us from Jesus himself, from the servant of the Lord, listen to me. Now, the only time that Isaiah, Isaiah will often say, listen, he'll, even when he's speaking, he'll tell the people, you need to hear what's coming. But the only time he, he specifically uses that phrase, listen to me, was, is when God himself is speaking. Listen to me. And so you may have wandered through Christmas seasons past hearing the story of Jesus, hearing about the birth, but today Jesus himself is telling you, listen to me. Jesus is the one who who stands and demands your attention. It's, and I I don't mean that your your mind won't wander a little as we consider God's word. I mean that, that you will actually stop and spiritually consider the truths of what Christmas really means, what the promise of the Savior means. Now, we, we don't like it when, when, I mean, even in those conversations when you, you sort of, you're caught, you weren't really paying attention. It's like, did you, did you really hear me? Or when you as a parent, you catch your, your, your child not really listening. Or as a, as a boss, you, you know, no one in this meeting is, is listening anymore to what's taking place. But because we don't, we don't like to be caught in that moment. We don't like to be corrected. We don't like somebody to to step right up into our face and say, listen to me. It feels too confrontational to us. It feels too much like you're you're imposing your your authority on me. And who are you to sort of shake me out of my comfortable slumber? See, we're okay with with the Bible, many of us, as long as we can pick and choose what we want to listen to. As long as we can sort of glean from it, hey, this is comfortable to me. This sort of aligns with the, the way I view the world. But do you see when, when Jesus steps onto the stage, he's, he's not merely concerned about what might be comfortable to you. See, when Jesus steps onto the stage, he has the right, he has the authority to say, listen to me. He is the servant of the Lord, the promised Messiah, the redeemer of his people, the rescuer of sinners. And so he has the authority to, to confront you with his word and And so I want to encourage you, even if you feel like you've listened, you've you've heard the Christmas story, you're familiar with it, the the details about the the mother and the baby and the the manger, I want you to listen. Listen to to the the promises of of what comes, because here in this passage we have the the, the servant's position. Notice how this, this passage begins, and we're just going to kind of walk through it in sections. It's really kind of broken into two sections, and we're going to take a little bit of time with the first two. It's, it's really verses 1 through 7, that's the servant speaking, and then verses 8 through 13, that's God 
speaking to the servants. You have the, the servant speaking and then the, the confirmation that comes from the Lord. And, and so look at the beginning of this passage where we see the servant's position. The servant has, has authority. We've already noticed that, that he can say, listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. See, this is not merely an announcement that, that should matter to the people of Israel. This is a worldwide global announcement of what the the, the servant would do, the servant's position. And, and look again at verse 1. Before I was born, the Lord called me. For my birth, he has made mention of my name. It's the birth of Jesus. It's the Christmas story. We hear already in, in this the, the, the promised birth of the servant, the echoes from earlier in Isaiah's prophecy, words which are familiar to us in the Christmas season. Back in chapter 7, verse 14, Isaiah says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel, which means God is with us. God is here in our midst. And so when the servant steps onto the sage and says, then in, verse, in chapter 49, before I was born, the Lord called me from my birth. He has made mention of my name. We, hear the, we see the servant's position. He is God's servant. He is God himself. He is Emmanuel. God who is with us. And this is the promise that the New Testament writers capture in the Christmas story. If you turn with me to, to Matthew chapter 1, that very familiar, the, the opening words of, of the New Testament, the familiar story. When we read in Matthew 1 verse 18, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together... She was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. The virgin is giving birth. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now, Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. But you hear this, the, the servant in Isaiah 49 describes his call, his position before God. It's the promised Messiah. This is the promise of Christmas. Then in verse 2, we read that, that he has been prepared by God, like a sharpened sword hidden in the, the shadow of God's hand, the, the sword of God ready to be unsheathed and bring justice and victory. This is Jesus. Jesus is the, the polished arrow, the arrow that will fly straight and true and hit the target to which God aims. This is Jesus, Jesus, the servant of the Lord. And we, we read then in verse 3 where God himself says, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. Now here, the, the, the description that you are my servant and the name given to this servant is Israel. It's not Emmanuel like we saw back in chapter 7 or in Matthew chapter 1. It's not Jesus, the Savior, it's Israel. Now, we know that in, in Isaiah's time is the, the name of the nation. 
And so you, you might be thinking, well, maybe, maybe this is a description of what the nation is supposed to do, but, but it, it has to be applied to an individual because we'll see in, in verses 5 and 6 that, that this servant is meant to restore Jacob, to restore Israel. So he is the individual servant sent by God. And remember, before Israel was a corporate name, before it was a name applied to the nation, it was a name applied to one man. Remember Jacob? God changed his name to Israel, a reminder of the covenant promises of God. And so, so what, we're, what we're being told here in Isaiah 49 is that Jesus, Jesus is God's true servant to fulfill all of the commands given to Israel. Israel was meant to make known God's covenant promises, not just in their own midst, but to the, to the nations, the nations we read about in Isaiah 49. Israel was meant to, to enter into a covenant relationship with God, to be God's servant. And yet Israel, because of their sin, because of their idolatry, because of their pursuit of their own pleasures, they have failed. And so God is sending a servant, his true Israel, Jesus, to do what the nation was created to do. And so we see here in Isaiah 49 the the servant's position, but we also see the servant's purpose. Look at verse 5. We're we're told in verses 5 and 6 what the, the servant will do. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him, to gather Israel to himself. He said that's the servant's purpose, to make the covenant promises of God. The promise that God would be the God to his people, his people Israel. The, the tribes of, the, the nation of, of Judah, the tribes of Jacob, to, to gather Israel back to himself. And yet we're reminded, like we saw last week in Isaiah 42, that it's, it's not merely to one ethnic group that this promise comes. The promise is much bigger than that. Verse 6 says, that's too small of a task for this servant. It's too small of a task for him to just gather this one nation. No, what is he meant? What is the, the servant's purpose? Yes, it is to restore the tribes of Israel and to bring back those of Israel, to the tribes of Jacob, and bring back those of Israel I've kept. But then look at the way verse 6 continues. I will, make you, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. This is the promise of of God that we see fulfilled in his servant. That the promises that were given to Abraham and his physical descendants, to those that were received into the nation of Israel, that promise is now being cast out and spread to the ends of the earth. That's good news for us. The people of God gathered from the nations the people of God from the ends of the earth. This is the purpose of the servant. And, and look again at verse 6, at those last phrases. And now, and you need to remember something about the way that, that Hebrew poetry, and often the prophets kind of slip in and out of poetry. Now, it's, it's not poetry like you and I would think of in that it needs to rhyme. It's poetry that's where you set up one idea and then you set up a parallel idea. Right? So it's it's poetry more of thought than of, than of words. It's, it's, it's more concerned with the concepts than the, the rhymes or the meter. And so at the end of verse 6, he says, God says to the servant, God says to Jesus, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles. So Jesus himself is the light. 
that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Actually, in the parallelism, and the, the Hebrew would, would support this, Jesus, I will make you a light for the Gentiles, and I will make you my salvation to the ends of the earth. That you may be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Jesus does more than announce the salvation of God. Jesus does more than, than shine a light on the promises of God. Jesus himself is the promise of God. Do you see, it's in the birth of Jesus that these, these covenant promises are being kept, they're being fulfilled. The longings that you and I have for the world to be made right, the longings that you and I have for, for our lives to be restored, to be reordered, are fulfilled in Jesus, who is the light of God. Jesus, who is the salvation of God of God given to us. And so this is our hope. And yet even in the servant's purpose, we see back in verse 4 the the hopelessness, the the dangers of of feeling like it was for nothing. Look at the way the the servant speaks. Look at the way Jesus speaks in verse 4. I have labored to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. Why would Jesus speak this way? Why would the promises of God be spoken to us like this? It's, it, and, and, and we might be trying to pick, pick one moment in the life of Jesus. Is, it, is this the, the way Jesus would have thought in the Garden of Gethsemane? I, I think what Isaiah is doing is, is looking ahead and giving us a, an overview of Jesus' ministry. Because think of it. Jesus is a peasant child born to a woman not yet married. Jesus is so poor that his, his parents are given the permission from the Old Testament law to, to, to bring the offerings of, of those in poverty. Jesus is born in the backwaters of the Roman Empire without any fanfare or glory. Jesus' ministry is in the small towns of Galilee. Jesus is spending his time among sinners and outcasts. And so the humiliation, the the, the purposelessness, the, what, that's what it appears to the world. That it looks like this is for nothing. Is in the whole life of Jesus. Jesus, this preacher who has followers, and yet as soon as things get difficult, people begin to abandon him. Jesus, as he goes to the cross, is abandoned by all of his disciples. Except perhaps John, who watched from a distance. And there is nothing in the death of Jesus that would have caused those standing there to say, this, this is the purpose of God. Because the death of Jesus looks like a failure. But that's the reason he came. The reason Jesus came was to give his life for us. And so that's why even in verse 4, as, as the servant himself wonders, have I labored to no purpose? Have I spent my strength in vain and for nothing? There is still his confidence in God. Look at the way the verse ends. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand. My reward is with my God. You see, when Jesus goes to the cross, he knows that the cross will not be the end of the story. He knows that there will be vindication for the sinless one, the the true Israel who dies bearing the shame and guilt of his people. He knows that vindication is coming. Vindication, the, the confirmation that Jesus is the true servant comes on Easter morning in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, the purposes of God made fully known to us. 
See, this is the servant's purpose. He is God himself. As we've seen in verses 1 through 3, he is God's servant, the one called from birth. He is the one coming to gather the nations together. And so we see then, as this chapter continues, as this servant song of Isaiah continues, in verses 7 through 13, the servants praise. This servant deserves our praise. Look again at verse 7. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who is despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers. I mean, remember the way the Gospels describe it. Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. That's the way John's Gospel begins. Jesus is rejected by the very ones who had the promises of God, the very ones who should have been waiting in eager anticipation for the arrival of the servant, and that they reject him. He's despised by them. But see the promises of God, that kings will see Jesus and rise up, princes will see him and bow down, and it may have only happened in momentary glimpses during the earthly ministry of Jesus. But one day, everyone on earth will bow before Jesus as king, either in loving adoration or in violent submission under the authority and wrath of God. Jesus is the one to whom all of the kings of the earth will bow down. And then as the the verses continue, we see the promise that, that all that has been spoken by the servant in the opening verses of this chapter is confirmed by God. In verses 8 and following, we we see again this phrase, this reminder, this is what the Lord says. When the servant comes, it will be the time of my favor, and I will answer you. This will be the day of salvation. I will help you. I will keep you. I will make you to be a covenant for the people to restore the land. The the promise comes that that when Jesus arrives in verse 9, he will say to the captives, come out. He will say to those in darkness, be free. And then consider the imagery that he gives to us. The the imagery of of sheep in the pasture, that imagery that that is drawn from Psalm 23. They will feed beside the roads. They will pasture on, on on every barren hill. The God himself, verse 10, will lead the, his people beside springs of waters. Even the description is, is, it is as if the whole world, the geography of the world, will be reoriented because of this Savior. The, all of the mountains will be turned into roads. The highways will be raised up. People will be able to come and to hear who Jesus is. Verse 12 says that, that they will come from, from, from afar, some from the north, some from the west, some from the region of, of Aswan. And, and translators, they're just guessing at what that word means. We don't even know where that place is. It's, it's the only place here in Scripture that that word is used. And so Aswan's as good as guess as any. Some, some translations will even, and guess, maybe it means, the, maybe it means the, the Far East. Maybe it means China. But you see that, that, that wherever it is, God's promises extend there. Because Jesus came, we were told in verse 6, to bring his salvation to the ends of the earth. And so what is the response when we hear of the arrival of the king? When we hear that the promised Messiah has come, that the servant is here, the only response is to bow the knee and worship him, to acknowledge that he is who he claims to be. So we started with those words of Jesus, listen to me. See, it's not enough for you to merely hear this message. It's not enough for you to, to even sing along to the Christmas carols. Do you 
believe this? Do you really understand and believe that this is what is true about the world in which we live, that Jesus is the rescuer, that Jesus is the redeemer, that Jesus is the savior? He's saying, listen to me. The savior himself pleading with you in the hope of the gospel. As soon as you understand who Jesus is, you find forgiveness, you find freedom. You are no longer captive to your spin. You are no longer lost in spiritual darkness, but you come into the light of Jesus. You are no longer guilty for your sins, but you come to be forgiven because Jesus paid the penalty for your sins. And so what's the response that's called for from us when we hear this announcement, the arrival of this king? It's verse 13. Shout for joy, O heavens. Rejoice, O earth. Burst into song, O mountains. For the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. You see how comprehensive this command to worship is. Everyone in heaven and on earth, the heavens themselves, the earth itself, the mountains should rise up to give praise to God. Shout for joy, O heavens. Rejoice, O earth. See, this is why at Christmas, this story has to be told in song. It's why some of you, you start listening to Christmas music in March. Because it's the kind of story that, that, that wells up within you. This has to be proclaimed. It has to be announced. The world needs to hear this message. And so you are being called to, to shout for joy, to rejoice in what God has done for you. See, the servant came to redeem the nations. The servant came to bring salvation. George Lyle was born into slavery. He first heard the gospel at his master's church. Then he was given the freedom to preach this gospel among the slaves in plantations around Savannah, Georgia. He was ordained to gospel ministry, the first black pastor ordained in Georgia. And then he was set free by his master. Belial would describe himself, he, he would say, I, I gladly see myself still as a slave, a slave of Jesus Christ. In 1782, Lyle, a freed man, sold himself as an indentured servant so that he could travel to Jamaica. He needed to flee the South, the Descendants of his master were threatening to pull him back into slavery. And so Lyle decided that he would take the gospel with him, selling himself as an indentured servant. In his first eight years of ministry in Jamaica, he baptized 500 men, women, and children. And all of this took place before William Carey, whom we sometimes consider to be the first American missionary. All of this took place before William Carey set sail for India. Lyle's church, filled with slaves, couldn't afford to pay him. He had to work himself out of debt, out of an indentured servitude, but he continued to serve 
preaching the gospel. He was thrown in prison multiple times, once for more than three years because laws were passed. You can't preach to slaves, he was told. The gospel can't go to, to them. Belial refused to obey that kind of unjust and immoral law. He saw himself as a servant of Christ. And so by the time the first English missionaries arrived in Jamaica in 1814, there were over 5,000 Christians there. A servant compelled by the gospel, willing to suffer for the nations. Lyle's sacrifice for Christ was great. Jesus' sacrifice was complete. See, Jesus is the suffering servant, the one who willingly set aside the glories of heaven and humbled himself to become a servant of God, a servant who would walk to his death. This servant died for you. But Jesus, the servant of God, has been raised from the dead. And so this Christmas, right now, today, as you hear this promise, heed the command of Isaiah the prophet. Shout for joy, O heavens. Rejoice, O earth. Burst into song, O mountains. For the Lord comforts his people. The Lord will have compassion on his afflicted ones. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we respond to this gospel message, as we give you praise, we pray that you would strengthen us spiritually in the gospel. That as we come to this table, you would strengthen us by the the work of Jesus. That you would remind us of Jesus' position as the king. Jesus' position as the, the servant. Lord, remind us as we eat and drink of the death of our Savior, of the purpose of Christmas. And Lord, I pray that you would, even as we listen, as we touch and taste, even as we hear your word, that you would bring us to faith, to salvation in Jesus, our rescuer, Jesus, our Savior. So, Father in heaven, we come in the name of Jesus Christ, Jesus, your servant, Jesus, our King. Amen.